The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. Right, good evening. All right. Start this out a little different tonight. I am a dad, so indulge me here. Got a few dad jokes for you guys, if that's cool. I tried these out on a few of the staff at dinner with mixed results, but I like them. There's a few exercise ones. New one, my favorite exercise is a cross between a lunge and a crunch. I call it lunch. I mean, that's all right. This one says, I want buns of steel, but I also want buns of cinnamon. That's pretty good. I like that one. Uh, the moms will appreciate this one. My name is Mom, but my full name is Mom, 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 Mom. And then uh, one more for the ladies. Some gal says, my bathing suit told me to go to the gym, but my sweatpants were like, nah, girl, you're good. <laughs> Come on. We can have fun in here. Ephesians chapter 2. That has absolutely nothing to do with anything I'm talking about tonight. Just wanted to have a little fun. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at the last few verses in Ephesians 2. Um, but before we get into that, I wonder, do we have anyone in here who is either actively serving in the armed services, maybe you served in the past, or you have a direct family member that serves in the armed services, would you just stand to your feet? Go ahead, and we want to honor you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Stay standing, stay standing. We just want to pray a blessing over you guys. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for our servicemen and women that protect the freedoms that we enjoy as American citizens. And those freedoms feel like they've never been more under attack than they are right now. And so we thank you for the acts of courage of these men and women who have put their lives on the line. And we recognize those who stay behind and send off loved ones into harm's way. And they're serving as well. And so we just honor them, Lord. We thank you for them. We ask for your protection over them, your blessing and your favor to rest upon them in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Yeah, praise the Lord. All right, so let's, let's go ahead and just begin by reading there in verse 19. Paul writes, consequently, some of your translations will have the word, therefore, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Man, this is, this is some good stuff right here. And, and you'll notice how Paul begins this Final section of the second chapter with the word 
consequently. And, and that word, I looked it up, it's a conjunctive adverb. I hope and pray I got that light right. If Kevin, uh, Kevin Pratt is here, he's an English teacher, he can instruct me afterwards. But it's a conjunctive adverb. It, it bridges the next thought, the thought you're about to hear, with the previous one. So it's, it's like the words then or therefore or because. And so we have to go back. We have to have a context here. We have to know what Paul was talking about in order for us to fully appreciate what he's about to share. So what was Paul talking about just prior to this? Well, we know that he was talking about all this hostility that existed previously between Jews and Gentiles, and this wall of division that separated them from each other and also both of them from God, but how through the work of the cross of Jesus Christ, that wall came crashing down, and now he is our peace. And so the wall of division has been torn down, and Paul is now going to describe how we've been brought together. And so he says, consequently, you're no longer strangers, you're no longer aliens, you're not spiritual outsiders, but instead, now you're fellow citizens, you're members of the same household. And then he goes on a couple of verses later to talk about how we are being built together into this house for the Holy Spirit to dwell. And so he's using these different pictures, these analogies, these metaphors, if you will, to talk about how we are being drawn together, how, how we are bonded to one another. And so we think about these different degrees of, of bonding things. You can tape something together, that's one degree. You can glue something together. But man, if you super glue two things together, that's a whole nother level. And what Paul is talking about here is the bond that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ is something that is far beyond any of the natural bonds that you can experience in this world. And so there are three pictures. He says, you are fellow citizens of his kingdom. You are fellow members of his family. And then he says, you are stones in his temple. And so tonight, we're going to walk through each of those pictures to talk about what we've been brought into. And this picture is one of increasing closeness. So let's, let's walk through each of those. He begins by saying, you're a citizen of God's kingdom. You're a fellow citizen together with the Jews of the kingdom of heaven. But what does that really mean? Well, the Bible talks a lot about two different kingdoms. It talks about the kingdom of darkness and it contrasts that with the kingdom of light or the kingdom of love, or it's sometimes referred to as the kingdom of the son he loves or the kingdom of heaven. They're all references to the same thing. And what you need to know is every single person on this planet belongs to either one of those two kingdoms. Now, you should know that your default setting, the way that you're born into this world, is as a child of the darkness. We, we don't come into this world perfect little angels, citizens of heaven, children of the light. If you've ever raised a toddler, say amen. Amen. So, so we all get that our default setting is sin, blindness, spiritually, and darkness. So the question is, how then do you become a citizen of heaven? if we're all born as citizens or slaves to the darkness? And the answer is the way you become a citizen of heaven is the same way that you were become a citizen of any place. The, the most common way to become a citizen of a place is to be born there, right? The only way to become a citizen of heaven, then, is to be born into it. 
You remember that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus? He was a religious Pharisee, and, and he snuck out one night and had this conversation with Jesus about what does it take to enter the kingdom? And, and Jesus said, well, you've, you've got to be born again, Nicodemus. Well, how do you do that? Well, the moment you place your faith in Jesus and you submit to his authority in your life, in that moment, your citizenship gets transferred from one kingdom to another. You get translated out of the kingdom of darkness, plucked from the the grasp of hell, and you get delivered into the kingdom of heaven. Paul said it like this in Philippians 3.20. He said, our citizenship now is in heaven. But again, what does that really mean? What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Well, it means a couple of things. I'll I'll walk through them with you. For starters, it means that you now have a people that you belong to. If you're a fellow citizen with other believers, then that is your place of belonging. This is the shared status of every believer. Now, this is really kind of cool because as you walk through this life, maybe you've experienced this where you just feel like you don't fit in anywhere. You're looking for your tribe. We're constantly looking for that group that we belong to, a place where where everybody knows your name kind of thing, a place where you can go and you feel accepted. And that's what you have as your status if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You share that with every other believer. So as an example of this, I remember, if you've ever traveled overseas to a foreign country where they don't speak English, then you'll know what I'm talking about. You, you're, you're walking around, and maybe you're, you're looking for a certain landmark or a place of historical significance, and, and everyone's just, you don't understand a word you're hearing. But then out of your ear, you, you hear someone speaking your native tongue. You hear English, and you just... You latch onto that person. You run over. You're like, oh my gosh. Oh, it's so nice to meet you. Are you an American? And you start talking. And it's like you have this instant shared bond with this complete stranger. Why? Because you share a citizenship in America together. You may not know them from Adam, but the moment you hear English, you're like, ah, you're like me. Well, that same thing happens with believers. You can be in a context, and you, you don't know them. For, I mean, I think this is a perfect picture of that. We have people in here from every walk of life, every strata on the, the social rung of society. We have, we have people from all over the place with colorful backgrounds. But we all gather together, and there's something that unites us that is greater than any of the things that might divide us. We're a motley crew. But in Christ, we all are citizens of heaven, and that's enough for us to celebrate. So another thing that it means to be a citizen of heaven, it means that this earth is no longer your permanent home. That's right. It's more like a layover, a place that you're just temporarily passing through on your way to your final destination. You know, like when you travel again or you fly somewhere and the plane has to land so it can refuel or so that new passengers can get on and passengers can get off. And and in that place of layover, you're not settling down. It's not your final destination. And and that's what kind of this earth is like for believers. It's not our home. And there's a sense in which you, you, you have this thing inside of you where you feel like, I'm not really ever truly home. And, and it's something that increases. The older you get, the more you begin to yearn for heaven. 
The more people that, that pass away and, and you're waiting to be reunited with loved ones in heaven, it just, it, it puts your heart in heaven. The Bible talks about, be careful where your treasure is, for there your heart will be also. And, and so our heart is in heaven. It's with Jesus. It's with our loved ones. And, and that happens to increasing measures the older we get. You maintain your earthly address, of course, while you're here, but you remember that your permanent residence is in heaven. So I was looking up this old song today. I was trying to remember the lyrics, and it's this old country song by Jim Reeves, and I love the way he put it. He said, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Hmm. I think there's a, a shared sense in which at some point in your life, if you haven't felt it yet, you will get homesick for heaven. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. The third thing that being a citizen of heaven means is that you have access to all the rights, benefits, and privileges of heaven. Now, you can think of this in terms of the rights and privileges that we enjoy as American citizens. I don't think we often think about them. We just kind of take most of them for granted. But there are a number of rights and benefits and privileges that you enjoy every day. And if you could, you know, talk with somebody who had immigrated here from a more restrictive place, they would tell you how blessed you are. For example, you have the right to worship however you want. It's not the same way all over the world. You have the right to, to speak freely, to speak your mind. You have the right to assemble and gather, the right to bear arms. You have the right to vote and have your voice heard in the government. You have all of these rights and all of these privileges. And then when you travel, you have the backing of the US government and the protection of the armed forces behind you. All of these blessings are yours simply because you're a citizen of the United States, like I said. There's a lot of perks to being a US citizen. And in the same way, there are some perks to being a citizen of heaven that you should know about and be made aware of. For instance, being a citizen of heaven means that you have access to God's throne of grace and can come boldly before him at any time, day or night, to receive help. That is so good. We have access to the throne of grace. It also means that you have the full support of heaven's king and are protected by heaven's armies. I love the verse in Romans 8 that says, if, if God is for us, <laughs> then who cares who's against us, amen? It also means that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and that your past is forgiven and that your eternal destiny is secure. And then finally, one more. This is just a few. We could keep going on and on, but I just want to mention a few. Being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven means that you can ask God whatever you will, whatever you want, and know that he hears your prayers and that he will give to you what you ask when it's in accordance with his will. And you say, well, what about all those prayers I pray that he doesn't answer? Hey, someday you'll thank him for those unanswered prayers. You know, somebody who's prayed for something and didn't receive it, Trust me, God knows what's best. So if you pray, he hears you, and then he answers the prayers in the affirmative that are in accordance with his will. Praise the Lord for that. You are a citizen 
of heaven. But it gets better. That's one degree of closeness. You know, if you're a fellow citizen with someone, you're like, yeah, I mean, we share the same, you know, government or same customs or same culture, maybe a little bit. But then he moves in and he draws in another picture that brings the connection even closer when he says, you're also members of God's family. So now we're moving the circle in another degree. And what he's telling us is, is if you're a believer, you're not just a citizen, you're a family member. And that means that you have not just one, but two families. Kind of cool, right? You have your natural family, that's the family that you were born into. But you also now have your spiritual family, the family of God that you were born again into. Now, the, the bonds that are shared in a natural family are blessed. They're wonderful. And I love getting to spend time with my family. And I think they're hardwired. Parents are naturally hardwired to want to love and protect their kids. And kids are, are designed, even though they fight like cats and dogs, they, there's a love, a bond that's shared between family members often. And you say, well, you, you don't know my family. It ain't like that. But even in those families, maybe if you're estranged from your parents or, or you have no relationship with your siblings, their influence in your life is still strong. However, you need to know this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, you're also part of another family. And sometimes this spiritual family can actually become closer to you than your physical family. Does anybody in here know what I'm talking about? Because there's a, a bond that is shared that is, is deeper. I mean, they say blood's thicker than water. Well, the spirit is thicker than blood. There was this, this instance in Jesus' own life where he was, he was in a certain place. And, and at this point in his ministry, his mom and his brothers and sisters thought that he had just lost his mind. And so they were coming to kind of rescue him and put him in a padded room with a coat with no sleeves kind of a thing. They thought he'd gone crazy. And, and so it was told to Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're waiting for you. And you know what Jesus said to them? He said, who's my mother and who are my brothers? Then pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What did Jesus mean by that? Was he disrespecting mom and brother and sister? No, he's just pointing out that the bond between believers is so strong that it rivals and in some instances even surpasses the bond experienced in an earthly family. You are a family member. That means the person on your right, the person on your left, they are your brother or they are your sister. So Turn to the person on your left or your right and say, what's up, bro, or what's up, sis? Just, just kind of drive this point home. But check it out. It also means this. If, if we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, then that makes God our heavenly father. Now, father was by far and away the favorite title that Jesus affixed to God in heaven. He was constantly addressing God as Father. In fact, 165 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as Father. But, but get this, it wasn't just that Jesus addressed God as his Father. It's that he taught his followers that they too should address God as their Father. He said, when you pray, pray in this manner, our Father. Not just my Father, but our Father. 
We're all part of a collective family. Now, when Jesus said the word Father in that prayer, that model prayer that we have in Matthew chapter 6, the word that he used for Father, it's, it's the Aramaic word Abba. Most of you know this. And it's an endearing word. It's an intimate word. And if you were to travel to Israel today, what you would hear all over the marketplace with little kids and little toddlers begging their mom or their dad to pick them up, they would be saying, Abba, Abba. And you would hear that word. And I've been to Israel, and it's so cool to hear it. They're saying, Daddy, Daddy, pick me up. For many little Jewish boys and girls, it's the first word that they ever learned to speak, along with the word ima, you know, which means mom. Mama. So dada, mama. I think all my kids' first word was dada because they got it right. No, I don't know. My wife would beg to differ. She's here, so I can't lie. But the idea is that it's the most natural thing in the world. Now, in saying that, again, I realize that for some of you, this picture or this idea of an intimate relationship with a father is a foreign concept to you. Maybe you had an absent father or an abusive father. I know that statistically speaking, 40% of kids go to bed every night in America without a father around. So it can be understandably difficult for a lot of us to relate to God in this way as our heavenly father. And what you need to know is even the best dads fall short of God's glorious standard. And so regardless of the kind of dad that you have, what you need to know tonight is that God is a good, good father. He is everything that your father was supposed to be. He's a protector. He's a provider. He's a healer. He's a sustainer. He's a corrector. He's a comforter. He's a good, good, good father. And he loves you and he wants to bless you. So there's this old fable I found about a Roman emperor who was returning to Rome after a successful military campaign. Great crowds lined the streets to welcome the victorious army. As the emperor made his way down one of those crowded streets in his royal chariot, a little girl, wild with joy, dashed toward his chariot. An officer stopped her before she could get to him and said, whoa, whoa, hold on, little girl. That's the emperor's chariot. You can't just run up to him like that. The little girl looked him in the eye and said, he may be your emperor, but he's my dad. And in a moment, she wiggled out of his arms and was in the chariot in her father's arms. And this is what it's like for us as believers. He is the emperor of the whole world. He rules and he reigns regardless of what you think, regardless of how you feel. God is on the throne and he reigns in omnipotence. But for us who are believers, he's not just the all-powerful emperor. He is also our heavenly Abba. And that's the kind of relationship that he wants to build with you. There's one more picture that Paul paints, one more degree of closeness that he talks about in the third metaphor. We find it in verses 20 through 22, where Paul begins to talk about how We're not just citizens of the same country or members in the same family, but he actually describes us as stones in God's temple. Let's go ahead and read those verses again, beginning in verse 20. It says, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is fit or joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
Okay, this adds yet another dimension of closeness, right? Now we're not just members of the same family, but we're literally stones being stacked on top of one another and fit together with mortar in order that we might become a temple that God can use to house his Holy Spirit. Now, when, when Paul used this language of you're, you're a temple, it would have immediately conjured up images in the minds of both his Jewish and Gentile audience. To the Jew, they would have thought of the temple that still stood in Jerusalem at this time. For more than a thousand years, that temple had served as a physical building, the, the physical manifestation that housed the presence of the Lord. So that's where their minds would have went. But the Ephesians, they probably would have thought of the temple of Artemis. You see, he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. There were a group of believers there in Ephesus, and located in Ephesus was this great temple to the Greek goddess Diana, or Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and so they would have thought of that. But, but Paul didn't have either of those temples in mind when he wrote these words. As a matter of fact, both of those temples were empty of the divine presence. Of course, Artemis' temple was a false god, and so there was no presence of God there, but even the temple in Jerusalem God had vacated that temple too. Ezekiel the prophet talks about it. And you can read about it in his prophecies how because of the sins of the people, the spirit of God departed from the temple and then ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. So both temples were void of God's presence. And Paul's whole point in this passage is that God was doing something new. That's what this section is about. He'd created a new humanity, one made up of both Jew and Gentile. New people need a new way and a new house in which to worship. And so that's what Paul says God was doing. He's building a dwelling place, and he's going to dwell in this living temple. Now, with regards to the temple, Paul tells us a couple of things. First, he tells us that it's a well-founded building built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Ask any builder, and they'll tell you that the most important part of any structure or skyscraper, I don't care how tall it is, the Burj Khalifa in Saudi Arabia or any other building, they'll tell you the most important part is to get the foundation right. Because without that, it's destined to fall, right? This is the problem with the leaning tower of Pisa. It's eventually going to topple over someday. Why? Because the foundation was faulty. And so the importance of a good foundation can't be overstated. Jesus talked about it. He, he talked about it in his Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. And he, he talked about these two guys. And one guy built his house on the sand, and the other guy built his house on the rock. But then the, the rain and the wind and the storms came. And in the end, only the house that was built on the firm foundation remained. And so the, the obvious application in that story for us is, well, what's the foundation that you're building your life on? And maybe that's a great question for us to consider here tonight, because we do have some options, don't we? For a lot of people, the foundation that they build their house, their life on, is pop culture. Whatever the cultural current of the day says, that's kind of what they go with. And they say, okay, this is what is right, and this is what's wrong, and this is how I'm supposed to live, and this is what's okay, and this is what's not. And they just allow society and culture to dictate to them what their foundation should be. And of course, that's like building your house on shifting sand, because what's popular today surely won't be popular tomorrow. 
It's a moving foundation. Other people build their lives on the shifting sands of their emotions, and they say, this is my truth, and and I feel this. But the problem with building your life on how you feel is that your feelings lie. They lie to you all the time. And if you build your life and live by your feelings, then you're destined to be manipulated by your mood. So both of these foundations are shaky. The only foundation that's guaranteed to last is the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Will somebody please say amen? Amen, amen, and amen. So when Paul says that God is building this house on the firm foundation of the apostles and the prophets, he's not saying he's building it on those men or on their offices. No, no, no. Rather, he's saying he's building it on their message. Their message and their preaching was the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation, and all other foundations are destined to crumble. But he goes on, he says, he's not just our foundation. He's also the cornerstone in the building. You see, a foundation is important, but in ancient buildings, the most important stone that would be put down was the cornerstone. It was the plumb line for the rest of the building. It's where the building got its alignment and its positioning from, and it determined the structural integrity of the entire building. There are lots of verses and prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus being the cornerstone. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said this as an example, Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. So Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the bottom layer. He's the central brick in the building of your life. He's the foundation, but he's also the first and most important stone. But he's also something else, because you see in Psalm 118, the prophet spoke of this when he said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Psalm 118.22. Now, the head of the corner, that refers to not the, the cornerstone, but it refers to another important stone in ancient buildings, one that was known as the capstone. Now, this is kind of cool. I want to talk about it for a moment. In contrast to the cornerstone, which was the first stone that was laid, in ancient building. The capstone was the last stone that was placed into a building. It was like the key that held all the whole structure together and all the other stones in place. Thus, it had to be designed and built to very specific specifications. There's actually an old legend or a story. I'm not sure whether or not it's true, but there is some evidence that would seem to indicate that it is, in fact, true regarding the construction of Solomon's temple. And during that time, as that temple was being built, evidently, it was forbidden. Solomon forbid the use of chisels and hammers or any other construction equipment to be used on the actual temple mount where the temple was being built. Because why? It was a holy place. It was a place of worship. And you can't very well worship with the sounds of jackhammers and saws going off in the background. So everything had to be done off site in the quarries, chiseled there, and then sent from miles away up to the temple mount. And from the very start, they had a very detailed plan of how this was to be done. And and one of the first stones that was sent up was this capstone that was the finishing piece to this temple. 
But as those who were at the actual job site looked at this stone, it didn't seem to fit anywhere in the initial phases of the building plan, and so it was cast aside. And years passed, and, and the grass and weeds began to grow up around it, and it was forgotten until the very end of the project when it came time to position the capstone of the temple. And they called to the, the foreman or the core at the quarry for the capstone. He said, what are you talking about? Our records show that we sent that years ago. And so a search was made, and somebody went out, and they found this stone that had been cast aside. And so it was that the stone that the builders rejected became the head of the corner, a beautiful picture of Jesus, the cornerstone, the capstone, the one who causes all things to fit together, has been rejected by so many. But ultimately, we know that he's the one that causes life to work without him. It just falls apart. It doesn't work. He is our cornerstone. He is our foundation. And he is our capstone. But what does that make us? Well, we're the other stones. You see, this building is unique, this temple that God is building, because it's made up of living stones. Did you notice how Paul talked about how we are being built together to, to form a house for the Holy Spirit of God to dwell? Verse 22. Now, when you go to Israel, you'll notice that if you've been there, we take tours every other year around here, and you'll notice that it's a rocky place. I mean, there's a lot of rocks in Israel. And when you go to the old city, the city of Jerusalem, the entire city is essentially the same color. It's all, well, actually, I don't know if you can see around the sides of, of our set here, but the walls um, on either side that flank the stage, they're built of what's called Jerusalem stone. It's a really pretty color, kind of a beige tone. And when you go to the old city of Jerusalem, th there's actually a law that states that the entire city, any building that you build, has to be built with this stone. And so the, the temple was built of these same stones. Some of them are absolutely massive. You can see one right there uh, that had been pushed off the, the edge of the retaining wall in Jerusalem. And it's 30 feet long, as big as a bus. I have no idea how they put it in its place. But Paul's not talking here about earthly stones, granite stones, limestone. He's talking about something altogether different. He's talking about living stones. Peter talks about this as well. If you read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he says this, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So cool. This, this church, forget Dwayne the Rock Johnson. You're the rock that Jesus is using to build his church. <laughs> Lame joke. You guys got to throw me a bone here. Every once in a while. You know, we, we, we meet people sometimes, we say, well, where do you go to church? Right? And that's not a bad question. I mean, where do you, where do you worship? But, but really, if you think about it, it's maybe the wrong question, because ultimately, we don't just go to church. This building that we're blessed with, praise the Lord for this place. But this is not the church. You know who the church is? It's us. We're the church. 
And so right now the church is gathered in this context, but when we leave those doors, we're not leaving church, the church is leaving. And we need to have that concept, we need to have that mindset. This is the church gathered, but then the church scatters and becomes salt and light in the community. We're living stones, and when we come together, it creates this spiritual house. And I love how Paul says that it's being joined together, it's being fit together. And the idea there is that it's not always a perfect fit. Somebody say amen. Actually, the word that Paul uses there when he says join together, it, it doesn't exist in the Greek. Paul is a rad preacher. You know why? Because he just he can't find the word that he wants, and so he just makes one up. We all do it as preachers, and I'm just like following in Paul's footsteps, I guess. But he, he does this. He makes this word up, and he does it by smashing three different parts of a Greek words together to form one brand new word. And I'm going to try to say it. I looked this up. Uh, on, on the interweb, and it sounds like this. Sinarmalageo. Sinarmalageo. Somebody else try to say it. Sinarmalageo. Sinarmalageo. Yeah, that's better. Okay, say it with me. Sinarmalageo. That's a fun word, right? I dare you to use that in conversation tomorrow. <laughs> but it comes from three different Greek words. Sin. Same idea from where we get our word symphony. You have these different parts, musical parts, coming together. This, the middle part of that word, synarmalogeo, is harmos. It means joint or binding. Harmos, think of harmonies, two different parts of a song that work together. And then lego, think of legos. <laughs> it means to collect, to pick out. So when you smush those three parts of Greek words together, what you end up with is this idea of putting things together in such a way that they begin to sing. Imagine a master builder carefully choosing the rocks that he's using as he's building this wall. Now, don't think of a bricklayer, right? Because a brick is essentially the same, and it just... But if you're working with rocks that are misshapen, there's going to be some chiseling. There's going to need to be some fitting together. And this requires the removal of excess material. It requires the chisel and the hammer. You know what that is? That's other people. <laughs> you can thank them. They're like the chisel. They're like the hammer. This is like a hammer, too, and it chisels off the rough places in our hearts and in our lives. You ever feel like you're just being chiseled away, right? Yeah, that's, that's the Lord fitting you together into the body of Christ. We're living stones, and we're taken from around the world, from all of these different queries, rock queries. And we come from all of these different places, but then we gather together, and it just it works. It fits. We have a role to play. We have a, a part that we're called to play in the body of Christ. And I love that God is the master builder. He's the one that puts the whole thing together. Now, the obvious point needs to be made that all of this takes one another. One stone could never be a house. It needs to be built up together with other stones in order to form a building. And so again, the importance of not forsaking the gathering of yourselves together as is the habit of some, especially all the more as you see the day approaching. We need to gather together. We need to be glued to one another. We need to be bonded together. And yes, when two rocks get together, if they're flint, man, some sparks are going to fly. But as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen the countenance of another and one sister sharpen the countenance of her sister. And so we need each other. 
We need to come together. And that leads to the last thing, and I'll close with this thought. This temple that God is creating, it's, it's, it's not just a well-founded building. It's not just a building made of living stones, but it's also a spirit-filled building. You see, when we come together like this, something, I don't want to use the word magical. It's, it's much better, much bigger than that. It's supernatural. Something supernatural happens every time God's people come together. It creates an atmosphere that gets released into the air that creates a place where God can come and dwell. The Psalms talk about this, that he inhabits the praises of his people, that there is something about the praise, the worship of God's people that he finds irresistible, irresistible and he says, ooh, they're worshiping me and I got to go down. And you know when it happens when God shows up in a space, in a building. I've been doing this long enough to know that there are times when God just descends on a place and his spirit becomes present and his, his power becomes manifest and his glory becomes real and it just overwhelms you and you just, you get lost in that moment and that's what we're here to do. If we're not here for that, if we're not here to gather around the throne of God and lift up our voices in song and glean from his Holy Spirit so that we can be transformed in the way that we live our lives and go out and make a difference for the kingdom of heaven, then what are we doing? Like there are other things we could be doing with our time. But I don't know about you, I'm here because the Spirit of the Lord shows up in this place. And he's here right now. Now you can miss it. You can miss it. Because God could be here, and I see this happen all the time. And one person's locked in, they're like, oh my gosh, God was here. And the person right next to him might be a spouse that's checked out, they're on their phone looking at their fantasy football team, and they don't even recognize it. And you know what happened in the Bible too? Because sometimes God would speak from heaven, and you'll read about, they heard the voice of the Father, and he said this or that, and then it says, and others heard thunder. It's interesting. Same God, same experience, but, but those people had different experiences based on their openness. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you how you are drawing us in. We need one another. We need your spirit, because without your spirit, we're just a rotary club or a really bad comedy club. <laughs> God, we're, we're nothing without the spirit of God. We need the ruach, the wind of the spirit to blow in this place, to cause our dead hearts to beat with new life. So Jesus, would you do that? Would you show up right now? Would you shake us up out of our lethargy? Would you, would you chisel away the, the rough parts that we've been protecting and not giving you access to? Would you move in, in such a way and to such a degree that it's unmistakable that the Lord is in this house? The Lord is in this house. And when he walks into a room, impossible goes out the door. When he walks into a room, healing and miracles become commonplace because our God is a healer. 
When Jesus shows up, the lame walk, the blind see, the lepers are healed, the dead are raised to life. And he's here. He's here right now. Lord, help us not to miss you tonight. We don't want to just play church. We don't want to just check a box. We're not here just to score brownie points with heaven, Lord. That's not how this works. We're here because the living God did a work in our hearts. So would you do it again, Lord? Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.